Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 99th episode, it's the return of author Kate Raculia. Along the way, we discuss The Westing Game as Intro to Murder Mystery 101, the sliding bracket of cool retro in teen films, and how everything, if you let it, comes back to Highlander. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? My name is Kate Raculia. I What makes me unique? Oh, I don't know. I'm a person like many other people. I'm a writer. My third book is coming out this October 2019, which I'm very excited about. It's called Tuesday Mooney Talks to Ghosts, and it is about work, money, ghosts, and Boston. <laughs> and how, as a child, I loved Indiana Jones. But I do a bunch of stuff. So I write. I work at the public library here in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I live. I do fundraising and marketing stuff for them. I am a freelance writer. I sing in the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, which is not an extracurricular I ever expected to have, but it's like super fun. <laughs> I really enjoy it. I played bassoon in high school and it was one of those things like i don't know if like did you play an instrument in high school or yes i was forced to play the alto sax oh that was what i started on oh Oh. (laughs) that was that was the the length of your tenure well they said that you weren't allowed to play drums until you had played an instrument Mm -hmm. and a friend of the family had an alto sax so i fell into that and i was very bad at it (laughs) (laughs) did you then go play drums after that or did that i did and i was better at that yes good you're like i I knew what i wanted to do from the beginning and it was drums why couldn't you let me Um, yeah put it this way you will know this as a bassoonist. This will make sense to you. <laughs> I was an alto saxophone player who lasted eight months and never learned how to tongue notes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a, actually surprisingly long for never having learned that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I played bassoon and I don't regret not like doing it professionally or like playing it in college or anything, but um, I, <laughs> it's fine that I'm not the like a professional of competitive, bassoonist. <laughs> the hotbed of competitive overachievement yeah, that is right? professional bassoon playing. <laughs> But but I loved like I love music and I, and reading like the stuff we sing in the Bach choir is like it's an, it's much more complicated than stuff that I sang in like high school choir because it's more like orchestral music and that's super fun mm-hmm. so so yeah so those are all the things that well I guess that's what I do professionally what makes me a unique snowflake I don't know my DNA <laughs> my fingerprints. <laughs> Ain't we all? Well, yeah, because the last time you came on, it was initially to talk about your book, Bellwether Rhapsody, mm-hmm. which still a favorite, still up Thank there. You. Although it's now good to make me question in your new book whether the ghosts are actually ghosts or just tortured adolescent feelings. Oh, <laughs> they can be so many things. 
because Kate, not to spoil that book to people who haven't read it, uh, it's a real swerve as to whether it's a ghost story or not, mm-hmm. and it's very spooky midway through, and when the reveal came, I got real mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Yay, I did it! Yeah. Woo, go me! <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm really interested to see that, because I too, like many people with two eyes and a heart, was a big Indiana Jones fan yeah. as a child. Mm-hmm. So this is very interesting. You very much uh, hooked me on for this book. Awesome. Yay. <laughs> but speaking of books, I want to ask you, initially when we were setting this up, and I think this is actually the longest rubber band between an early guest coming back on for their return episode, because I think you were on episode seven or eight. I was early. I was pre-double digits. <laughs> That's true. And we are coming up very soon on episode 100. Wow. So not counting like quiz episodes or other kind of oddball things I've done. Mm-hmm. But initially at the time we talked about the Muppets. Yeah. But this time coming back, you wanted to talk to me about the Westing game. And I have no frame of reference for the Westing game apart from a recent thread on Twitter where people were listing young adult books that formatively changed their lives, yeah. stealing my gimmick. <laughs> Many, many people yelled about the Westing Game. So what is the Westing Game? So the Westing Game is a book written by uh, a woman named Ellen Raskin. It came out, oh, I'm going to say 78, 79. It was kind of written post-bicentennial in the States. So there's a lot of like, rah, rah, America, <laughs> like in it. But in, in like... There's actually a fantastic piece that was just in the New York Times by uh, Gio Tolentino about she did some research into kind of like the labor movements and hist- American like history that sort of specifically inspired this book. But it's a book written for I guess now it would technically be in like the middle grade range. I read it when I think I was 11. I would say like 10 to 13, 10 to 12 is like primary interest before YA existed the way it exists now right like there was still like YA but it wasn't this like like gigantic mm-hmm. uh, category there were apple paperbacks and there wasn't much else yes exactly yeah yeah or like Robert Cormier there's like real dark YA which I super loved obviously but yeah so the western game I read it when I was 11 it is a puzzle mystery book where there are it's written in like an omniscient narrative where narr- or point of view where Ellen Raskin goes into the minds and hearts and thoughts of like i think there's 16 characters Whoa, and only okay. three of them yeah and only three of them are children everyone else is an adult <laughs> which like when you describe this book to people they're like this was a book for kids it's like yeah it was and there's like like this is how i know what a bookie is because like one of the parents is like a bookie and like <laughs> like it was like i don't know what gambling is like oh now i know what gambling is several families who have they all kind of have some connection to like a business, this idea of like the American dream of like, you know, you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna open a restaurant or you're you're gonna start a doctor like a podiatry practice and they're all they don't realize it, but they are all courted specifically to live in this apartment building. And once they're all in the apartment building, then this very rich man named Sam Westing, who was like a paper magnet and takes place in Wisconsin. He dies, and he names all of these people in his will and says that his life was taken by one of them. So in order to get the money of his inheritance, the heirs amongst themselves and teams of two that he assigns have to figure out who took his life. Like, (laughs) yeah. That's a hell of a premise. This is like the usual suspects combined with Clue. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Combined with Brewster's Millions? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as a kid who did grow up playing a ton of Clue and saw the movie Clue in first grade, which is like the perfect time to see that movie. And then you can see it again later and be like, no, this is a perfect thing. And I understand more jokes. <laughs> but but I, I love that 
and you know it's also kind of like an Agatha Christie like like the hotel or the um, apartment building is sort of like this locked room mystery and all of the characters are incredibly complicated human beings who have they're at all different stages of life they have all different kinds of jobs they are paired in ways that like you see them either resist that pairing or like really thrive in that pairing and, and ultimately um, I think the way that Tomatino puts it in the article is that the book is like this celebration of the messes that people make the glorious messes they make when they can access a sense of possibility because like they just all of a sudden start to think of themselves in different ways and and it changes their lives and the end of the book does this incredible thing where and again I was 11 I'd never read a book like this before it ends like the game ends there's like there's fireworks and everything literally there are fireworks and then it jumps ahead like a year and then it jumps ahead like five years and then it jumps ahead like 10 years and people die <laughs> like, and they like move on and like they grow up and they have kids. And I was like, ah, life is so big. I, I had never it like it just completely blew my mind as a kid. And I am still writing books that are me trying to like capture that high, I think, because that's like this book that's coming out in October. A very wealthy, crazy rich man dies <laughs> like, and the plot begins when he publishes a game to anyone in the city of Boston to play to kind of like give away part of his fortune to the people who play and the main characters are all playing this game. So thank you, Ellen Raskin. I'm just stealing all of your ideas that you won a Newbery Award for. And, and she's, she's also just an incredibly cool person. Passed away very young in her 50s. I think she had some kind of a, a disease. But she was also an illustrator. She illustrated the, I don't know if you can picture the original cover of A Wrinkle in Time with like the little mm-hmm. the outlines. That was oh, yeah, her. Yeah. That was her. She did that oh, book wow. cover. Yeah. Go. And she did a lot of the, she did, was an interior designer too. Like she designed the inside of the Westing game. And that also like is a person who read books and wanted to make books. And, and also like I went to school for art. Like I have that in me too. I was like, I want to be like you, Ellen Raskin. <laughs> so that's the Westing game. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like the minute you say about how much of a big influence it was, yeah. like yeah, one of the big parts of Bellwether Rhapsody is you know a bunch of disparate, messy personalities yes. being in a remote location where they are locked in by a blizzard, mm-hmm. and so it's like again, it's this idea of yeah, you're you've got this sort of pressure cooker yes. of a space, and that is pushing everyone to extremes mm-hmm. just by its nature. Yep, you know because. Hey, as anyone who's been on a long car ride knows, you get into strange, even just conversations, let alone, you know, states of mind or states of emotive states, anytime you're isolated like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. You get different kinds of, there's the downtime of like, you all live in this place together, right? And you have to live together. And that's kind of like, there's people of all different backgrounds, nationalities, jobs, and all kinds of stuff in this one apartment building. It's sort of like, and that's kind of for like microcosm of the American dream this apartment building is a melting pot like (laughs) and there's conflict and they have to like talk about it and like use each other and their relationships with each other to like grow it's a great book and there's tons of puns I mean as you know from my Muppet episode (laughs) I really dig a pun (laughs) oh and listeners if you wondered if after the Muppet episode where we gushed about Steve Martin as the waiter (laughs) talking about sniffing the bottle cap I did in fact every time I saw a wine bottle with this bottle cap I did send a picture to Kate on Twitter for maybe nine months yes, afterwards it was amazing. <laughs> long after the joke had become funny uh, no it's <laughs> still funny. funny it's still funny it's still funny <laughs> would you like to smell the bottle cap <laughs> actually just tying it back around to what you would just said as you're describing this apartment building right just in my head I pictured a particular apartment building from my one visit to New York which is visible from Central Park it's the two kind of 
towery looking ones. Yeah, yeah, can, yeah, yeah. You know the ones mm-hmm. I'm talking about. Because when what we did is that the one time we went to New York, a friend of ours hooked us up with one of those movie location tours. Oh. Where it's like, you know, oh, we go around Central Park and points out all the things that have been used in various movies. Like, of course, you go to the Bow Bridge, and I embarrassed myself because he was like, and who could tell me what movie this bridge has been used in? What did you say? Rather than anyone yelling when Harry met Sally or, you know, Keeping the Faith or any number of romantic comedies where the Bow Bridge features heavily, I piped up from the back, Highlander! (laughs) Like I'm the only one? Because it's true. That movie I did not see until I was like maybe like four or five years ago and it blew my mind. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's It's amazing. It's a thing, isn't it? It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, and so the thing is, the reason it came back around is because when he pointed out those buildings, he mm-hmm. talked about how many very famous people have lived in those buildings, including Steve Martin. And he apparently used to walk his golden retrievers by taking him through the hallways of the, <laughs> of of the that particular building. building. So someone could be like coming out of their room and just see Steve Martin with two massive golden retrievers walk by and go, hello, and keep going. <laughs> That's so yes, coming back around to this Western game building. Oh yes, the the tour. There was me yelling about Highlander, and my partner, who has seen all of Gossip Girl, was able to get all of the <laughs> all Gossip, the Girl, Gossip Girl places. <laughs> what else was on the tour? Oh god, yeah, because it was just through Central Park, mm-hmm. and then and then we got to the, the Bethesda Fountain. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know, where you you walk under and come out to the fountain and he's like, oh, and that's where Thor goes back to Asgard in the first Avengers movie. And this is where John Wick is attacked. And this is, you know, all all of these various things. It's like, this is the most filmed part of New York City is that fountain and the area around it. really interesting. And yeah, like I can just like picture lots of different things happening there. Yeah. Also, Mm -hmm. just recently saw the John Wick movies. They're amazing. (laughs) I'm like, I come to things late, but I come hard. (laughs) Oh, God. And talking about, in the pre-show, we talked a lot about random movies that we gave a lot of scrutiny that probably didn't deserve that scrutiny. Yeah, right. In, I think it's the second John Wick movie, one of the sort of the main kind of bad guy sidekicks is played by an actor named Daniel Bernhard, oh, who is yeah. a, a French actor yeah. and martial artist who I know from a whole bunch of like really terrible direct-to-video action movies. But he was also became a stunt double and a stunt fighter and was used in things like the, the second Matrix movie, it used him as one of the agents. Yep. And he could fight like that. He didn't need to be trained. <laughs> And he turned up, and I'm like, oh, shit, that's Daniel Bernhardt. Things are about to get crazy. <laughs> and you're like, I know the signs, and I know how to read this yeah. text. I mean, the only equivalent would be, like, Cynthia Rothrock turning up in something now, and I would be like, oh, shit. <laughs> Do you, were you a Mystery Science Theater watcher? I guess then and now. Yes, yeah. I was. Yeah. yeah. I really feel like I've discovered that. That's another really formative text for me. Like, I was, like, 12. And I, like, I feel like there are two camps, right? There's a Joel camp and there's a Mike camp. And, like, they're very, like, similar. But I am I am the Joel camp, which is a little more, like, I actually ah. feel a great affection for these, like, crappy movies. <laughs> and, like, and there's something that's just, like, I actually like watching the movies and, like, looking at what a mess it is and like appreciating that it was made by human beings and it still exists and like like i'm I'm much more of a like poke at the things and like just like straight up ridicule things which i feel like yeah. is slightly more than my camp do i laugh at both of them yes i do <laughs> see i was more of the mic camp because my entry into mystery science theater was finding the movie mystery science oh, theater the movie yeah playing on the movie channel yeah. and just like not knowing what it was but finding this like 
incredibly funny thing. Although the, apparently the creators hated making it because it was very, very studio managed oh, and they, really? they hated it compared to their normal process. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can imagine that because it was just a bunch of dudes at like, where were they? Minnesota? Someplace in the Midwest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just like hanging out and doing whatever they wanted. So. <laughs> and this idea of, oh, now you're reporting to Gramercy Pictures mm-hmm. and they're giving you notes on the jokes and saying mm-hmm. that this one needs to be, uh, needs to at least have one swear word in it because we have to break it so it's not a G rating so kids don't buy this movie. <sighs> Yeah, that would annoy me. And stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I found it by accident. And so I was like, Mike, what's the guy? And then shifting gears and then dropping back into those Joel episodes. Yeah, it's different. (laughs) Yeah, it's like even just the tempo of things Mm -hmm. was just completely off the wall, um, which is actually something I struggle with a little bit with the new one. In that it is very funny, but because they've cranked up the density of the jokes. Yes, the joke density is like 30 Rock joke density. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, something will happen on screen and they will go, okay, rather than just joke, joke, it will be joke and then joke and then joke and then joke. And they'll all be different Mm -hmm. because it's like, oh, you don't like this one? We've got another one. You got another one? Got another one. And I'm just like, Uh, yeah, let it sit, you guys. Yeah. The first one was really good. (laughs) Like we, I need to sit and like marinate in that joke and appreciate that joke and then we can move on. Yeah, going to see the movie was one of the hardest times that I've laughed in a theater. It was a really, really fun experience. And I've gone to see some of the live shows and those are always super fun. Both the live shows and the like Fathom events. I don't know if they do that where they like screen it. Like you actually, you're they're not there, but you're watching them do it live on a big screen. Uh, I've seen those too. Which is that's fun. cool. Yeah, it's really yeah. fun. But yeah, it just gave me much more of an appreciation for the process, I guess, and movies and stories and like how complicated they are to put together, which like in some ways, oh, I'm tying it back, is what I loved about the Western game. Like as a kid, it's it's so, there's so many bells and whistles. There's so many parts to it, right? And it's really very busy. It's a very, very busy book. For a kid, like understanding that adults are just as like kind of clueless and interesting as other children. I mean, of course, Turtle, the main character, the girl who's 12 or 13, she ultimately is the hero, of course, still. Of course, um, she of course she is. And she grows up. You see her as like a full adult in the end. Like she is oh, an wow. adult <laughs> at the very end of the book. It just really made me, again, as an only child, I hung out with a lot of adults. So maybe that's why the book was especially appealing to me. I was like my primary peer circle up to that point had m- probably mostly been adults. Not that I wasn't like friends with my peers in school, but yeah, only child. I feel like everything I'm like, it's because I was an only child. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if I can say everything is because I was an only child. Maybe that's what makes me a special snowflake. <laughs> there you go. There is something about, it's something I've talked about in a previous show where, because it sounds like the Westing game is playing on a lot of, if not playing on a lot of tropes, it's just aware of yes. like being part of a mystery genre. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, applying that in different ways. Mm-hmm. But when you're a kid, you have no knowledge of those genres. You are just coming at a book a particular way. Yep. Yeah, it's like the first time you encounter the hero's journey, you're like, what a great story. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, wow, I didn't know. I talked to previous guest Matt Wilson about this, where he got into noir pastiche before he ever got into noir. Mm. And he found the pastiche to be more interesting because it was knowingly playing with those right. tropes rather than... Just being those tropes. Yeah. Just being that thing, right? And this is going to explain why I was so confused. Because do you, are you familiar with Gordon Corman? You work in a library, so I presume... I know. I, I don't know. Oh, there yeah. you go. See, Gordon Corman was a Canadian writer who was writing about the time when I was maybe, you know, nine or ten. Okay. And he's a very funny writer, partially because he was very young when he sold his first book. Like, I think he was, like, not even, like, 17 yet. Oh, maybe once I hear a title. It was the McDonald Hall books. Okay, no, then I don't. Yeah. Yeah, like, he wrote a bunch of different books that were not part of that series, because it was sort of a boarding school 
kind of hijinks yeah. book. Hijinks. And then he wrote a couple of others about a kid con artist, which is one of my favorite, called No Coins, Please. That's awesome. He, like, uses a cross-country road trip for a tour uh, to basically set up little scams across the states, awesome. including selling pet rocks or attack jelly, as it was known, because it was <laughs> grape jelly with, like, you know, came with a kit and, like, a, a cleaning cloth and instructions on how to care for your attack jelly. <laughs> Or it sets up a complicated slot car race on, like, Capitol Hill. And he gets all these senators, like, betting on the cars, which is basically Mario Kart. Because he's got obstacles and stuff to knock them off. So no one ever crosses the finish line. (laughs) Again, it's fantastic. It's one of my favorite books. And one of his books, which, again, was just one of these standalone books, was called Our Man Weston. And it was about a, a pair of twins who are set to be, like, helping out at a hotel for a summer. Like, they're going to be, like, bellhops. And one of them is obsessed with spy stuff and the other is extremely level-headed. And so the one brother thinks that all the guests in the hotels are spies. <laughs> and so orders like, you know, one of those old school like uh, bug tracking devices oh, yeah. from yep. out of the back of a comic book, yep. sticks the pin into the shoe of one of the people and like reads carbon paper out of someone's trash and compiles this like incredibly complicated conspiracy theory as his brother just is like, please, please, I, I just, I don't want to be in trouble. Right? I just want to get through the summer. <laughs> it's like, why are you doing this, this again? This book sounds amazing. <laughs> it, it is. And that's probably when I was seeing everyone talking about it. I'm like, oh, so many more people. Oh, it's a different book. Oh. <laughs> but it is that like, yeah, it's like the first time you encounter. So I read this book, I read Western Game, and then very shortly thereafter, I read And Then There Were None, the Agatha Christie book, which like, I mean... Western Game is in some ways playing on that same thing, although and then there were none is much darker. <laughs> like a Western mm-hmm, Game that ends mm-hmm. that way would be very sad and not for children. Although and then there were none is for children. So, <laughs> I mean, it was for this child. Well, again, there's, there's all those dead people. Right, exactly, <laughs> so. all those dead people, and like the last one, like you make her feel so bad about what she's done that you make her like commit suicide. Like that's that's you know I read that when I was twelve. It was fine. I literally made. <laughs> we had to do like an art project as a book report, and I remember I made this giant mobile that hung in my sixth grade classroom that had all of the different characters from, and then there were none, and all of the like murder weapons. <laughs> Like, just hanging in the back of the room. But I... Yeah, I'm picturing this, like, when you look at it from a certain angle and the two things cross and one of the weapons will, like, stab into somebody. (laughs) And, I mean, they definitely... Also, I was a kid who loved murder, she wrote. So, like, I had been very steady diet of... And Clue, right? Very steady diet of murder as, like, a story. And, I mean, the Westing game is a murder story, right? He's he's dead and he's accusing Mm -hmm. his heirs of they have to solve the crime of who killed him or who took his life. Please tell me that at least one person says oh, I bet he's not actually dead at some point in the... No one actually says that. I'll just leave that there. No spoilers for this children's book that's been out forever. (laughs) For 40 years. Oh, God, it has been over 40 years. I'm so... I'm not... I don't feel old. I don't think 40 is old. I'm turning 40 next year. I feel very happy about where I am in my life. But that, when you say 40, it feels long. Yeah. It feels long. Hey, linear time is a hell of a drug. Sure is. (laughs) You can put it this way. The very first Fast and the Furious movie, the very first one, the bad one, is now old enough to drive. Oh. <laughs> well, I hope it's making good decisions. <laughs> yeah. I, hope. I love framing stuff like that, like where it's like you take the age of a thing and then talk about what that person would be doing if that person was that old. Yeah. Like, you, like I think I said it um, a few 
I can't remember when I said it, but it was saying that my relationship with professional wrestling is now old enough to get a discount on its rental car insurance for being over <laughs> wow. 25. Which is like the last like bastion of like, I have leveled up. <laughs> I can now rent a car. Yeah, it's graduated from university and it doesn't know what to do with its life now. But it can rent cars. <laughs> I go. remember thinking like when the X-Files had its 20th anniversary, whenever that was, I don't know, because that, that was 93. So it would have been... 2013 yeah around 2013 and thinking like wow the distance between now and me watching the x-files in high school is wait i'm gonna do some quick math and it's probably gonna be wrong is like less time than like when sergeant pepper came out and i was because like like when you're a teenager and i loved the beatles as a teenager too that was another huge formative influence they were just like ancient they they came from the time before i existed and the time when my parents were teenagers which like the Westing game, oh, I'm always looping it back, like That's helps good, me good. appreciate my parents could be teenagers. <laughs> my parents had rich inner lives. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's when you think about it, and this is something where I'm sure I could get a chart and like one of those boards with all the red string and everything, and I like, talk about how it's all connected. Yeah. And how, you know, Baskin Robbins has a 30 second flavor. <laughs> it's when you look into the fact that. The teen movies of the time that are trying to be cool, not the ones who are using the most recent music, but the ones who are trying to be retro. Yeah. So in the 80s, all the music in the John Hughes movies was all like 60s soul, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. It was Stax Volt, Motown stuff. Absolutely. Like, think about Ducky. Yep. There you go. Oh, yeah. And then in the early aughts, all the cool music in those movies was like 80s pop music. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's like a sliding bracket of like, oh, whatever the previous decade was is horrible and we're not touching that. But the decade but before the decade that. decade before. Yep. We're gonna, that's where the hidden gems and were. And we're going to show like our cultural knowledge and like cachet by being like, oh, we know this cool music from like back in the day. It sounds fresh to you, doesn't it, youngs? <laughs> yeah. And hence the, in the 70s, you get a great wave of nostalgia for the 50s. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So it's this idea of whatever is most recent is horrendous and, oh, God, what are we doing? Right. Whereas the one before, ah, oh, yes, back in the day. Yeah. Which I felt rather distinctly watching Pen15 a couple of months ago. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Well, I it is too. set in 2001. <laughs> it is extremely topical for that time. Yeah. And to the point, the thing is, I would have been just getting out of high school and starting my first year of university at the time. Yeah. But even then, I was old enough to look at some of that stuff and go, oh, that is extremely on point, that reference. <laughs> That's what I've heard. People really, I was just, 2001, I was just finishing college, which I feel like there's like a weird, like, I, I'm still very aware of like pop culture and things that are going on, but not like, it's not, and I'm sure part of it is just, it's not like directed at me quite as much anymore, right? So like, I can avoid it unless I go looking for it. But something, I mean, something like Stranger Things is always going to, like, hit me in the face. And you said something earlier about the other guest you had on who, like, came to Pastiche before he came to the actual thing. I wonder if people, like, younger people, like, if I came to Stranger Things now without being having the like literacy to read it as like a reference buffet like would i then like go find john carpenter movies and would it completely blow my mind or would be like this is dumb (laughs) like i don't know i don't know because yeah it it is true where if something has been incredibly referenced if the source material isn't as strong as you remember it yeah then it's like yeah something like that you can look at it and go oh that's boring because the new version knows to change it enough to make it palatable to the current audience whereas you know 
something can seem incredibly slow if it's from even so much as 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah, the Mu- the Muppet movie is very slow. As much as I love it, I do notice yes. I'm like it's very pokey. <laughs> Actually, my ex-wife saw the Muppet movie for the first time uh, in her 30s uh-huh. and could not get Couldn't through do it. it. She do was it. just like, "What? This is not good. What is this?" And I'm just like, shh, shh, "You're missing all the jokes, <laughs> right? <laughs> just like, just like sit quietly with it. It will come to you. <laughs> Cultivate some patience." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just the other day, we actually, there's a service called Stan, which is kind of like Netflix, Uh but it's an Australian one, and it's roughly equivalent to what's on Hulu. Oh, cool. In that it will get, you know, it will get new episodes Mm -hmm. of things, as well as having older stuff. And when the Netflix deals in Australia expire, things tend to go to Stan. And so you'll watch Stan, and I realized that shortly after we got our subscription, I had started watching the new Muppet movie, and then turned it off because I had to do something. And so we started it up again, and that movie's good. That movie's really good. Oh, the Jason Segel one? Yes. Yes, it is really good. It's so affectionate. And I think, like, that is, like, he just loves them. And I know, like, if I ever met Kermit the Frog, I would just, like, weep. (laughs) I would just, like, cry. I'd be so happy and so overwhelmed. And I think that that's where that movie comes from. And that's, like, why it doesn't feel like a cash grab or crass. There are parts of it that, like, don't work. But, like, it's really affectionate. And I'm very fond of it. What I find is that even little stuff in the background, like Gonzo is running a plumbing company, yes. right? And he, as he's walking and he's giving notes to all of his assistants, who are all chickens. Obviously. <laughs> and at one point he says, memo to the boys in the waterless plumbing department. I don't care about the mess. Just keep trying. <laughs> always, and I paused the movie like... because that's so good. It is. And so dumb. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and like the one where they, I, I, all I can see is the part where they like cross the ocean and like the car like comes out of the onto the beach, <laughs> like, it's so good. It's, covered in seaweed. Like, yeah, and that like, I, which is interesting because I feel like that movie understood where the Muppets were coming from and like was updating them and making them modern, but like still stupid vaudeville level jokes, right? And I yeah. feel like the TV show didn't get that which i watched a couple episodes of the new one and i was like "Hmm." yeah i didn't see it because i have this thing where if i had something is on my list and i see the internet kind of like roll it up into a ball and stomp on it (laughs) it tends to slide further down my list and eventually i just don't watch it at all yeah i think that's fine there are many other things for you to watch (laughs) and just coming back to your point where you were saying like oh you know the pop culture isn't aimed at you it's also more accessible than it has been yes. at any point in your life. So diffuse, yeah. To the point where, like you said, when you turn on Netflix, you get that sort of, oh, God, there's so much. I'll never be able to find a good thing. And mm-hmm. What if I start a thing and no one else is watching that thing and I can't talk about that thing? Yeah, yeah. Or, like, I'm only going to find things that are like other things that I have liked because algorithm, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm never going to just, like, trip headfirst into something I don't even know I need. I don't even know is going to change my life. Like the Western game, like, and then there were none. I just found those books in my library, which is like why I super love libraries and work for libraries, CA libraries and like backlist. Right. And that's how I, I found all of the things that I can look back and say that was super formative. I didn't go looking for them. I just found them, you know, and just yeah. finding things like is both more possible and like, it's like possible to find things. It's harder to choose things because there's so much. Yeah. I think that's part of it. Yeah. You've actually reminded me, and I use my local library in Leichhardt for this. It has a very good uh, multimedia section and a very good comics and manga section where I kind of replicate that because the thing is my knowledge of manga and anime is very, very limited, yeah. and I accept this. <laughs> but I have many friends who are into who are into these kind of things. So what I'll do 
is anytime I walk past on the way to the kids section, so here I can go and play with all the toys yeah. and things, I will walk past the manga section. If I see something is number one in a big long stack, I will just grab that number one and check it out and read and see if and I just, can if I just like experience it. it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I've read like, you know, a romance comic set in a kendo school. I've read a futuristic take called Library Wars, which is where <laughs> sounds awesome. pirated books are considered to be the number one threat to humanity. Yes. Uh, and so cops have to go and raid the warehouses and stuff. So I found all these odd things. And I'll do similar with the, the movie section because Leichhardt is an extremely Italian suburb, or at least it was once. And so you'll have all of these Italian romantic cinema classics that have been Ugh. either fallen into the public domain. And what I love is that they'll have these public domain movies and they've clearly gotten a local artist to paint them or draw them a new cover. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so awesome. Like you'll find this like sci-fi thing and it's like this, it looks almost like it's made out of plasticine, but it's a picture of a plasticine model of a UFO, people coming to meet it and a city on fire in the background. And it's so lo-fi. I love it. It's like, it's like finding a zine. I wonder if like once upon a time, like you went to the internet to find what you would never dream of finding. Like, will there be like a like a pushback against it? It's like, go out and like go to a used bookstore. You're going to find stuff there that you would never find. Oh, yeah. In, the, in, like, all of the flotsam and jetsam of the internet. Like, and you actually find exactly. a, a physical thing. <laughs> and it's like, I actually do that. I do that whenever I go on holidays. I go to a used bookstore. I and love just used like, bookstores. I mean, yep. half the time I'm just sending pictures of covers to, pe- to people yes. I feel they will be useful for. Like, all bad sci-fi stuff goes to my friend Alex. Oh, yes. <laughs> I found 15 Quantum Leap novelizations that I what? carefully documented and sent to Catherine Van Arenog. We could have talked about Quantum Leap here today, too, because I really <laughs> love that show. <laughs> Oh. So much. So, what is a what what is a quantum leap novelization? I imagine it's much like an episode of the show. <laughs> yeah, well, some of them are actual like write ups of episodes, and okay. then others are not. So it's clearly like someone decided that they were going to make their bread and butter writing quantum leap episodes that never were. Can that just be my job? Actually, this should just be my job from now. <laughs> How, what are the covers like? Are they like painted, or are they like yeah, like a photo? They're painted. Okay. Well, because if you've seen the um, Star Trek Next Generation books, yeah. Where yeah. it's always like, this is a lovingly painted representation of an actor who is not in this book because it's a book. Yes. <laughs> and yes, it's lots of... <laughs> but that's why you're picking this book up, because you love this, yeah. Yeah, it's lots of Sam Beckett in places like standing in front of the pyramids, or it's like on a Civil War battlefield. Oh my gosh, and in the novels, does he travel outside of his own lifetime? <laughs> God, yes. It's it's one of those things where they're clearly like, okay, well, we don't have to worry about the budget, so we can put him anywhere. We can put him anywhere. Yep. Also mm-hmm. known as the Young Indiana Jones novels trick. Yes! <laughs> yes. Because, yeah, so it was one of those things where I love, like, going in a deep dive of that. But mm-hmm. coming back to the library, it's like, because there's no risk to it. Yes. I find it's really easy to just be like, what the hell? I'll grab... You know, mm-hmm. these random screwball comedies and see if there's anything good in them. Because when Hero was very young, I had lots of time sitting in front of a television waiting for a baby to fall asleep on my shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And that was where I first found, for example, A Touch of Mink, which is a oh. great movie. <laughs> very funny and very stupid, but also kind of clever and kind of great. I've gotten great use out of a gif of Doris Day going up to the main guy's room, getting absolutely shit-faced on wine. And he comes in, and she's, like, splayed out on the bed in the frumpiest pajamas ever yes. uh, with a wine bottle on her toe. And she waves at him by going, what, what, with a wine bottle. <laughs> That's awesome. And at one point falls out of the first floor window off the balcony and is then carried through the lobby, still drunk, saying, I'm to be returned to room 305. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like oh, Doris. incredible. And it's, it was one of those things where it had no right to be as good or funny as it was. And yet it was. Yeah. She worked as, as like her friends worked as cooks in an automat. Which, how about of its time, right? Right, yeah. So, and they would gossip and talk about, oh, yes. At one point, she was up in this guy's office and she used his phone to call down to her friend to get some advice. And her friend mistook that, oh, you're trapped in this man's office and you can't leave. And you see her friend literally grab a cleaver off a block and, like, is ready to mobilize. Like, run to her like, rescue. Yeah. You're across the street in the office building. Hang on, honey. You won't be there long. And I'm just like, oh, everyone needs a friend like Edith. Oh, my God. <laughs> But it's also like those movies, I mean, the best, the best movies weren't just all made in the last like 20 years, which like is kind of all like Netflix will show you except for a few scattered things, right? I couldn't believe it. There's less than 60 movies before 1970 in Less than what? Less Less than than 30 movies before the, before 1970. That's crazy. That's completely crazy. And like, that's why I still have my, my single disc subscription in case I like want to watch something from the many decades before that right like an audrey hepburn movie that isn't breakfast at tiffany's exactly exactly yeah what did i i watched a great recommending a podcast on a podcast you ever listen to you must remember this oh yeah yeah yeah. i'm a huge fan yeah so good so so yeah i feel like i've watched so many movies because of things that she's recommended and like weird stuff and weird stuff and also not weird stuff like what's the veronica lake movie where she's a witch oh shoot um yeah it's so good it's so good um, and I can't think of what it's called right now. Bringing a Baby, which I had never seen, which is a riot. I mean, I yeah. love her. Uh, I Married a Witch. Yes. Well, well there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's right there in the title. It's And great. actually, I have seen that DVD case in my library. Oh, right you should next totally. To yep. The Glass Bottom Boat, which was another Doris Day movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's like, I find that that too, when I first, so I moved from Boston to Bethlehem five years ago now, which is crazy that it was five years. By the way, Boston to Bethlehem, great title of your Thank autobiography. You. Thank you. It's so, so true. Specifically to give myself more time to write and to like focus more on writing and focus more on like the business. And, and I read a lot of books that had just like recently been published and which is great because it keeps you up to date. But I was like, whoa, like I need to read some classics from other decades because I'm just too in it, right? Like you're too in the moment. And writing a book for me is not an in the moment thing it has to be something it takes years for me to do it so it has to kind of be outside time in some way and like I have to like take in things that have that are outside of this moment in order to like really you know feed my brain what it needs to talk about this moment as it were (laughs) no it makes perfect sense I mean the last I've always said it you know never try to be incredibly cool for right now because all you're doing is giving your future self fodder to go what was I thinking seriously yeah because like right now is already over (laughs) right like you can't there is no right now when will then be now (laughs) (laughs) we talked about space balls in our last episode come on (laughs) i know i know i can't help it and the theory of narrative causality always comes up but it's funny because anytime you get that like for example before hero was born we went to the baby classes that everyone has to go to and at one point we watched an instructional video and i was able to pinpoint to the month when that instructional video was made because the lady in it was wearing like boot cut flares oh. that would have been sold specifically <laughs> in the summer of 2000 just before you started got into 2001 yep oh that's too funny like those are silverado jeans i can spot that a mile away 
thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love jeans, but I'm not like a particular, like I don't, I don't collect jeans or anything, but I've recently sort of had to turn some of my jeans that I've lovingly been wearing for a decade over. And I was like, what is this tyranny of high-waisted jeans? High-waisted jeans are not a new thing. <laughs> but like there's suddenly like I have to deal with them and I'm like, ugh. But then I think back to like the absurd, like low, like Britney Spears, like, like, yeah. No, they don't. No, I don't want those jeans. Either. I just want a nice, sensible mid-rise. That's all I'm yeah, asking just for. Give me something that fits, for Christ's sake. Yeah, seriously, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm. I'm not very. What is it? Al courant of the moment. <laughs> That'll I'm, do. I'm anti al courant. <laughs> and bringing it back to Highlander again. Ah! See, we're bringing all of it back. Oh my gosh. For all that, the Columbo-style London fog beige trench coats are slowly coming back into fashion again yes. after it being, you know, everywhere in the ni- late 1970s and early 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones with the massive lapels that look like you're kind of yep. wearing an unopened umbrella. <laughs> what does not come back into fashion, except for in very specific circles, is the giant white Jerry Seinfeld tennis shoes that uh, Christopher Lambert wears in that movie when he's... So fantastically... <laughs> Yeah, sure. You've got a trench coat, and sure it's beige. It's not dark or anything. It can still be cool as you pull out a katana. But then you step back, and there are these gleaming boats of shoes. <laughs> you know, he like washes. Like, like I mean, if you're a Highlander, I guess there's not much else to do but like wash your sneakers with like a toothbrush. Oh God, <laughs> yes. I can remember in high school there was always the one friend who went and bought like the sneaker eraser, which is what you oh would use God, to get yes. scuffs off of your yes. white shoes. I'd forgotten those existed too. And I actually bought a pair of white sneakers in the last couple of months because I'm very, very hard on my shoes. And I like uh, shoes, but I like ridiculous shoes. Yeah. And so I always need, like, a sensible pair that I can, like, slip on to, you know, run the pram around the block or go to the store in the middle of the night or whatever. Yeah. And I had a pair of, of Nike ones that are, like, the free-run ones where they're bendy and they look like slippers because mm-hmm. they have no laces. Yeah. And I can pull them on in a hurry. And now they're falling apart because I've mm-hmm. worn them so much. And I had a $50 gift voucher for the local Westfield Mall. And I was like, okay, I'm going to wait to the sales till something goes down to about 100 bucks, And I'm going to use the voucher for half of it. And then I'll spend 50 on the rest. And because I work next to a mall, I was just like cruising through the stores as yeah. they were setting up for the end of year sales to the point where one of the Foot Locker ladies was like, do you work here? And I went, <laughs> I see no. all the time. <laughs> and she goes, do you work in the mall though? I'm like, no. And she goes, because I see you here every day. I'm like, you're next to the food court. I walk by. <laughs> I eat, I have to eat every day. <laughs> yeah, and what I really wanted to say, when the truth was, you guys are being really slow at laying out your sales stock. You put the table out, but then you're only putting out like one thing per day onto that table. And it's really slack. And I want to make a decision because I have a gift. None of that came out. It was just, I turned red. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, like <laughs> did you see her again? Did you like walk by again? Or was that the end? No, I made extra I made extra sure. They got glass walls in that store. I can make extra sure that I, she is not there when I walk past. <laughs> Also, you were in a mall. I don't remember the last time I was in a mall. <laughs> well, they're, they're still big in Sydney. But what I bought was a pair of Adidas Superstars, which are like the kind of late 80s, early 90s, yeah, big cushiony yep. shoe. And they're in white leather with a black stripe. And so they're very run DMC. And yes. they're like wearing couches on your feet. They're so comfy. Are they heavy? Or have they like made them lighter in the last? They've made what, them lighter. Although I did yeah. run for the bus wearing them at one point, and it did feel like I did have two couches strapped to my feet as I was running. <laughs> I had, I mean, I I have I usually wear just like 
I have a pair of Chucks, like good. They're sort of my like creative business <laughs> shoes <laughs> instead of wearing like pumps or heels. Although I do have a fair number of pumps or heels still. Um, and I have just like little slip-ons. My cat, who's a jerk, chews on. I don't know why. He thinks he's a dog. <laughs> but I did have an amazing pair of high top LA gear in like 1989, 1990. That takes that, me back. That yeah, takes that me had back. the little like thing on the side where like it was leather that was pink on one side and black on the other and it was twisted so you could mm-hmm. see the like co- different color mm-hmm. they were they were cool af <laughs> yeah. but, I, yep. but I, I only wore them to like walk around the mall walk around my house and walk around my school i did not actually use them to play any sports <laughs> <laughs> of course not no, sporting shoes are not for sporting i no. was actually talking to a guy about this yesterday we went to one of kimiko's friends birthday parties and a guy had a very cool pair of air jordans on and i complimented him and we talked about sneakers for a bit yeah. And then I, I pointed out that I had once bought a pair of terrifying robot boot LeBron 13s because they were at a, uh, an outlet store and they were super like discounted. Like they were like $300 shoes and I got them for like 60 bucks. And I'm oh like, my God. Yeah, you can't yeah, not. They're terrifying robot boots. Of course I want those. <laughs> Except the problem with most basketball shoes and also terrifying robot boots is that they don't bend at the oh. ball of your foot. So I found myself the one time I wore them walking around like a robot, not bending my feet. Seriously, that must hurt after a while. I had half crippled myself by the end of the night and then sold them on eBay as worn twice in good condition. <laughs> Boom. How, did you sell them for more than 60 bucks? About that same. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> swings and roundabouts. You know how it is. But yeah, I, I remember like I talking to my friend Jen who loves basketball. I'm like, yeah, those basketball shoes, I wore them. They really hurt my feet. And she's like, yeah, dummy, they're for playing basketball. They're not for walking around a bar. <laughs> You're like, how was I to know that? How was I to know that? Yeah, not a professional it's not like it says player. basketball shoes on the box or anything. Uh, never mind. <laughs> <sighs> so we're probably pretty short on time. So if people wanted to find your book, yes. where would they do so? So my book will come out on October 8th, 2019, and it will be available wherever you buy fine books. Or not fine books, so just get wherever you buy books. Hopefully it'll be in your libraries too. Yay! Yay! And I am on, my website is just kateraculia.com, K-A-T-E-R-A-C-C-U-L-I-A.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, at Kate Reculia, although I'm not really on Twitter that much anymore, because I, yeah, I just need to Yeah, you disappeared for a bit to write the yeah. book. Well, exactly. I, well, the thing was, I was on Twitter a lot, and like Twitter is sort of a like distraction machine, and it was making it hard for me to concentrate. Like I couldn't get into like the flow state, and I was like, "You need to not be on here. <laughs> you need to go write your book." So, and yeah, I'd, so I, I'm not on there, but you can like you can at me, and I'll at you back. And I'm on Instagram under my cat's name, which is Gomez Rack. So if you like, cat, I mean, there's a lot of cat content there. It's mostly what it is. It's like cats and books, but mostly cats. So. That's me. <laughs> I think you've just described a combination of content that will appeal to many listeners of this show. Fantastic. <laughs> and speaking of being a distraction machine, Kate, I think this may have been the most disjointed and all over Yay! the place episode I have ever done. <laughs> we traveled so far from the Westing game. But like part of, I mean, oh, I'll bring it back. Part of what the Westing game is about is about like that multiplicity of experience of what it is to be a person, what it is to be an American, what it is to be a young person in a world that you're growing up into. Like, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's extra. (laughs) Much like Highlander. Very extra. (laughs) (laughs) And I've got to stop us there or we're going to just talk about Highlander for another two hours. (laughs) All right, Kate, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
Thank you very much to Kate Raculia for her time. For Kate's signature cocktail, I remember last time she highlighted that she likes gin and clean flavors, but bitter over sweet. And I think I have a cocktail that ticks all those boxes. And so I present the Sandy McSouthers. In a mixing glass full of ice, combine two ounces of botanical gin, half an ounce of Campari, half an ounce of Punta Mez vermouth, half an ounce of sweet vermouth, and a dash of orange bitters. Stir vigorously until combined and then strain into a champagne coupe. Relax, sit back, and coast down some purple waves. Like all good things, can also be finished with a twist. Enjoy! is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You could be a mysterious benefactor gifting you an apartment building, or a paper fortune, or something else from the Westing game. It's up to you. You're the millionaire. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, physical mail, and I would just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a review, and if you let me know, I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, in order to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever played, going all the way back to episode one. Including this one. It's Nothing Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship. Of course it is. I update the playlist every week as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Ah, the good bit just kicked in. Next week, I have a very special guest coming on, and I think I might keep it a secret for now. Join me, won't you?